0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners in conjunction with Mercy Ascot. I'm Rachel Jones, a GP, and today Dr Alan Fraser discusses bowel cancer screening, surveillance and general management in primary care. Alan is a gastroenterologist and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Auckland. He is a member of Auckland Gastroenterology Associates, based at Mercy Ascot Specialist Centre. Welcome Alan.
1: Thank you Rachel, it's a pleasure to come and talk about a a serious problem for New Zealand.
0: So on that note, can you start with a brief overview of the epidemiology of bowel cancer in New Zealand?
1: Sure, so every year uh, 3,200 cases of uh, colorectal cancer are diagnosed and uh, every year, 1,250 cancer deaths. Uh, So this is the second cause of cancer death in New Zealand, second to lung cancer. Uh, And for women it's actually equal to to breast cancer and a lot of people don't realise how significant it is as a health problem in in, in women. Uh, The other thing is for for Māori we've had the feeling that it's been less but it's been rapidly changing now and it's getting The Māori rates for bowel cancer are getting quite close to that for non-Māori, so we should really consider the risk there to be the same. Uh, Lifetime risk of bowel cancer, 1 in 18, so quite significant. However, for the person in front of you, the 50-year-old in front of you, their risk in the next five years is only 1 in 300. So somehow we need to uh, target our investigation to those who are at risk.
0: As we know, many cases of bowel cancer are asymptomatic until later on in disease progression. So addressing modifiable risk factors, early detection of symptoms, screening and surveillance are all essential to help reduce morbidity and mortality from this condition. So let's discuss each of these aspects in a bit more detail, Alan. If we can start with risk profiling, what modifiable lifestyle factors increase an individual's risk of bowel cancer?
1: Well it's a very interesting area and there's been a lot of debate about uh, diet and the risk of bowel cancer and clearly uh, patients want to know what they can do to to reduce the risk. Things that have been clearly associated are are red meat intake and and processed uh, meat um, and protective things are high fresh fruit and vegetable intake. Dietary fibre is protective but uh, a little less than what's been promoted. A cancer research group in the UK, a a uh, national-based program, considered that 54% of bowel cancer was preventable, which is uh, perhaps surprising to to many of us. And they attributed a 21% risk to red and processed meat, uh, 13% risk to being uh, overweight, and I'll come to that a bit more, 11% to not enough fibre, 12% to excess alcohol, and 8% to to smoking. So I think we should be telling our patients uh, uh, when we give our usual advice to lose weight and uh, stop smoking and stop alcohol. Uh, it's not just about cardiovascular risk, it's about cancer risk as well. And it's various cancers, but it certainly includes uh, bowel cancer as being increased in these, these lifestyle factors.
0: Are any factors considered to be protective?
1: Certainly. Uh, so losing weight is, is very important. So if your BMI is over uh, 30 uh, and if you have any features of metabolic syndrome, then uh, your, your risk is about one and a half times. And so if you can lose weight, uh, that's definitely going to be uh, protective. And I think it's a very good motivating factor for our patients. Uh, uh, they might reduce their cancer risk. Physical exercise, uh, there's about a uh, 20% reduction for those that are in regular physical exercise compared to the inactive group, uh, and clearly stopping smoking. Uh, and and the dietary things that I mentioned.
0: I remember some um, commentary or some articles that said that um, aspirin or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or even HRT might be protective. Is this evidence-based? It
1: is, Uh, so we've known for quite a long time that uh, regular aspirin uh, reduces the risk. So it's about a 30% reduction at least, uh, quite consistent across the studies with regular use for for more than five years. So intermittent NSAID use uh, seems to have the same uh, protective effect. Uh, Hasn't been widely promoted because of the the risks, Uh, but if uh, if you're considering a patient uh, for aspirin for other reasons, you could say that this also has the advantage of reducing uh, bowel cancer. HRT uh, may have a small protective effect. But a a Cochrane review in 2012 suggested that I didn't think the evidence was that strong and not clinically significant, so I I wouldn't put that into your equation uh, when you're thinking about HRT.
0: And are there any circumstances which we may not be able to modify which would place a person in a higher risk category for developing bowel cancer?
1: Well, of course, uh, how old you are is is the most critical part, uh, and... uh, It's an exponential curve uh, for risk starting at about uh, 50 and uh, over 70, getting into quite significant risk. If we look at all cases, about 25% of bowel cancer is in over 80 age group. So that's not modifiable, but we need to think about that when we see our patients. Men have a a higher risk than than women, uh, but not uh, that significant. And then we need to talk about uh, uh, family history uh, and in particular, a first degree relative.
0: So early detection of symptoms and signs is obviously crucial, Alan. Can you remind us of the red flags?
1: Well, the most important symptom to, to think about is, is rectal bleeding, uh, and uh, perhaps the best way of, of illustrating this is, uh, if we think about a, a, a study of open access to, uh, to a, a bleeding clinic in the UK, 600 patients, And of those, uh, almost 4% were diagnosed with colorectal cancer. So it's a a significant yield with uh, all comers, all rectal bleeding that you might consider for investigation to an open access clinic. But of course you can do better than just thinking about bleeding or not. You can ask about the type of bleeding. uh, And if it's uh, bright red blood uh, and it tends to be sort of uh, on the paper mainly or splattering in in the toilet bowl, then that sounds like hemorrhoidal bleeding and, and they're gonna have a lower risk. But in that study, actually 2% of those patients had bowel cancer, so any bleeding is worth investigating, it seems. Um, but if it's bleeding that's uh, altered blood, dark red, mixed with the bowel motion or, or coating the, the stools, then that has a, a higher a risk and definitely should be investigating investigated.
0: So obviously we're going to ask about rectal bleeding, but what salient questions, other salient questions, should we really ask when we're taking that history? Well,
1: the next thing to think about is change in bowel habit. Uh, and it's, it's a difficult question because uh, so many of us have a change in bowel habit and it's hard to know whether it's significant or not. Uh, and it doesn't come out that well in terms of uh, increasing the likelihood of, of cancer, maybe one and a half times risk with a recent change in bowel habit. The main change is towards diarrhea that's the most uh, helpful. Uh, and this usually happens with a, a rectal cancer or a large villus adenoma, where there's actually a secretion that happens from the, the cancer and makes it look like diarrhea. The change to constipation is, is, in most studies, doesn't help at all. Um, the only thing that's suggestive is if you have uh, alternating bowel habit recent change with low abdominal cramping pain might suggest an obstruction but constipation without pain uh, really isn't a risk factor for bowel cancer.
0: And your must do tips when examining? Well
1: uh, 25% of colorectal cancers in in the rectum uh, and some of that will be within reach of the examining finger so clearly a rectal examination but if you can it is really important to to try and have a look uh, with a proctoscope. Even a limited examination of the last 10 centimeters uh, will be helpful as you will pick up hemorrhoids and that'll uh, be useful uh, but you may see some altered blood or mucus and, and uh, have a hint that there's something just a little bit uh, further up. Unfortunately you might think rectal cancer could be diagnosed early but actually 40% are advanced at diagnosis and uh, often see that the opportunity for early diagnosis uh, has been missed. Obviously you do an abdominal examination uh, and uh, look for abdominal mass uh, but actually that's not that common uh, but 1 in 300 referrals uh, are for abdominal mass and about half the time it's, it's incorrect it's actually just uh, constipation so yes we'll do it but don't expect to find uh, lots of abnormalities.
0: If we want to be really astute with the blood tests that we're requesting, what would we need to request? Well,
1: it's not that uh, much. Uh, You're going to do a full blood count and iron studies, uh, and uh, uh, anemia associated with rectal bleeding uh, is a a must uh, examine, and uh, that would be uh, given high priority in any any gastroenterology clinic. Uh, a low serum ferritin alone is also worth investigating, but less less predictive than actually having iron deficiency uh, anemia. Uh, An advanced cancer may have a raised uh, CRP, but this usually suggests metastatic disease. Uh, An abnormal liver test, unfortunately, is, is going to be a bad sign, possibly liver metastases. And, and unfortunately, some patients will present with their liver metastases with right upper quadrant discomfort and a large liver and, abnormal liver tests.
0: So let's talk about faecal protecting and faecal occult blood tests for patients that we think are symptomatic of um, bowel cancer. Should we be requesting these in general practice in this particular scenario?
1: So currently uh, the use of faecal carprotectin can't be recommended. Uh, there's administering studies uh, particularly using faecal carprotectin as, as a negative protect, uh, predictive test. Uh, but I think this is still uh, investigational. Uh, we would see the main use of the fecal carprotectin in primary care is, is to rule out IBD, to try and differentiate from IBS. Uh, and it might be useful, uh, time will tell, uh, but it will still miss a significant number of cases of IBD. And if there's diarrhoea or rectal bleeding, you really need a, a colonoscopy. And if the CRP is elevated, then there's no role for... For a fecal car For the um, a fecal occult blood test uh, for evaluation of symptoms, it's controversial uh, and uh, uh, I need to give the party line, which is uh, that it's not recommended. However, uh, it's interesting that uh, the NICE guidelines in 2015 controversially supported the use of a fecal occult blood tests for evaluating symptoms in some situations. Uh, and immediately there was a a backlash from various specialist societies saying they disagreed with uh, this recommendation. And certainly uh, most of the gastroenterology departments and DHBs are are, are very against this idea. There are arguments for and against. Uh, Certainly uh, there's the problem of over reassurance with a negative test Uh, and there are certainly documented late presentations of patients with negative uh, tests Uh, where symptoms are ignored by both the patient and the doctor from false uh, reassurance. Uh, If there's going to be a test, it should be the FIT test, this uh, immuno test, which is far more accurate than the Gwaiak test. Uh, But the main problem is is that there just isn't the resource to do the extra colonoscopies that will result from uh, a lot of people having these uh, fecal occult blood tests in, in primary care. Certainly, if the person's got occult rectal bleeding no point in doing the test uh, you evaluate based on that symptom uh, and if I've got anemia there's no point doing the test and, and not if it's following a recent uh, diarrheal illness. In favour of the test uh, and this will needs further study but there are studies suggesting that it actually has a better sensitivity uh, than simply following symptoms as we've discussed uh, with a positive predictive value of around 3 to 4%, which is actually better than what we do uh, with uh, symptoms. So the jury's out, uh, but at the moment we just can't uh, cope with the extra volume of, of colonoscopy that would arise.
0: So on the subject of colonoscopy, we think our symptomatic patient needs specialist investigation. So who are we referring for that standard colonoscopy and who is more suited to CT colonography?
1: So first we need to be clear that there's, we're talking about CT colonography as the alternative to colonoscopy and, and not barium enema. Uh, there's still some centres doing the old-fashioned barium enema and, and that's just not uh, acceptable now. Uh, CT colonography is a, a good test, it's an adequate test for evaluation of symptoms where colorectal cancer is, is a possible diagnosis uh, but it's not the test if the person has diarrhoea, it's not the test if the person has a family history and might have uh, increased risk of polyps or they've had previous polyps in the past. The problem is if you do the test uh, the patient needs to be prepared to have a colonoscopy if polyps are seen and in practice that's around about 25% of, of tests. That percentage depends a bit on on how significant, degree of significance you place on on smaller polyps, let's say less than 10 millimetres. Uh, we would still think they are important, uh, and when we do these colonoscopies to try and find these polyps, we, we consistently find that there's been an under-reporting of polyps with the CT uh, colonography. The other negative, I guess, is, is the issue of non-colonic findings, the, the CT picks up all sorts of other bits and pieces, that various uh, cysts, et cetera, uh, that are mostly not important, but end up needing more assessment uh, to reach that conclusion. Those things said, most departments are looking to use uh, CT colonography for around about 25% of symptomatic patients. So it's, it's, it's got a role in the investigation of symptoms.
0: So, what key information do we need to include in our referral to ensure appropriate timescale triaging? So,
1: this uh, information is in the uh, national guidelines or, uh, for referral criteria for colonoscopy in New Zealand. It's been an attempt to try and standardise uh, who, who gets the colonoscopy uh, around, around the country, and it's been uh, modestly uh, helpful. And a term that comes up all the time in those guidelines is unexplained rectal bleeding. Uh, And this means that the referrer is going to be looking for some evidence that there's been an attempt to exclude hemorrhoids or anal fissure. Uh, And if you can state that uh, an examination has been done, uh, uh, not just a rectal examination, a digital rectal examination, but a proctoscopy. And that there aren't hemorrhoids that would go a long way towards making the case that this rectal bleeding uh, is very important and needs to be uh, examined by colonoscopy. Detail about uh, there being altered blood coating of the bowel motion uh, as we discussed before uh, is important emphasizing the recent onset either of rectal bleeding or of a change in bowel habit uh, would be important. And then uh, with family history uh, every detail makes a difference Uh, and if I can perhaps just go through that uh, a little more. Uh, We all know that having a first-degree relative increases your risk of colorectal cancer uh, about doubling your your lifetime risk that goes from 1 in 18 to, to 1 in 9 so it's pretty important. Uh, and in a lot of the guidelines, there's sort of this cutoff of 55 years um, for the first degree relative. So if they're younger than that, that's important, and if they're older than that, that's not so important. But really, it's, it's a it's a continuum. Uh, and if the first degree relative is less than 40, that's about a two and a half times risk. But if the first degree relative is actually over 80, it's still about a 1.8 times risk. So actually, mm-hmm. still quite important. And so. Uh, If you can, any first-degree relative really uh, means that you should be um, put forward for colonoscopy. It's just our current guidelines are are trying to make uh, a reasonable cutoff for for our resources. Uh, And people with multiple affected relatives, uh, your risk can go up to three or four times, so detail about second-degree relatives grandparents, uh, etc., uh, is important. So the more you can put in there, uh, the more that will uh, be important in the, in the triage process. The other thing that tends to get lost is the, the patient's personal history of having polyps in the past. Uh, and they may have had a procedure uh, 10 years ago and it's been forgotten exactly what. They might have been told they had a polyp. Um, but the, the detail actually makes a huge difference. So if they had an adenoma and it was an advanced adenoma, um, by advanced we mean more than a centimetre or villus type pathology or high grade dysplasia, but mostly we're talking about size, uh, then that person has a significantly increased uh, risk uh, as opposed to someone who had just a small hyperplastic polyp. So retrieving the report, retrieving the histology and putting that in the referral will make a a big difference in terms of how how it's assessed. So often uh, we're looking at the combination of family history with symptoms uh, when uh, looking at uh, priority.
0: Our discussion so far has been based around the symptomatic patient. So let's move on to discussing surveillance of asymptomatic patients. What key points would you like to get across today, Alan?
1: Well, it's very important as Alan moves towards uh, screening and and we're making uh, slow movements uh, towards that. Uh, For most of us, it's really agonisingly slow, but uh, we're we're pleased that the process uh, is in train. and I'd like to just emphasise that we're not doing that well in terms of looking at symptoms alone. Uh, and we, we, our statistics don't look very good compared to those we might like to compare us to, like Australia or the USA. And there, there are three ways we can say that we're not doing so well. Firstly is five-year survival, 61% in New Zealand, 67% uh, in Australia might not sound like too much but actually if we, if we had the same sort of survival figures in New Zealand as they do in Australia that would be 400 less deaths per year. So it is a, a real difference. Secondly we think about the stage at diagnosis and in New Zealand 24% present with metastatic disease compared to 17% in the UK and 19% in Australia. Significant differences uh, and sadly of Māori and 35% of Pacific people present with metastatic disease, so we have a significant problem there as well. And then thirdly, we look at those that present to the emergency department with their cancer. In New Zealand, it's 34%, quite a lot, where it's 21% in the UK. So all of those figures tell us that we're not doing well in terms of simply evaluating on the basis of symptoms. So to make a difference, we really need to get into screening uh, and finding asymptomatic patients uh, with cancer as well as uh, finding patients with advanced polyps to try and prevent uh, bowel cancer. And the Wider Matter uh, Bowel Cancer Screening Pilot's been going for over four years now, and it's been a success. A lot of lessons have been learnt. Uh, 375 cancers detected to date, so uh, very good at only 8% with metastatic disease. So that's a significant difference. These are early stage cancers, 50% early stage cancers. So it works. Uh, And uh, the rollout will happen to other DHBs and and, uh, I'm confident there will be a quality screening program uh, in place. The real concern is being able to resource this and and provide the number of colonoscopies that we need. It's about a 50% increase and, and perhaps unfortunately, but uh, the way it has to be that to, to do this, we've had to restrict the age to, to 60, starting age to 75, and we've also had to drop back the sensitivity of the, the FIT test. It's an immuno test where you can set the sensitivity uh, wherever you want. Uh, and this makes, uh, will make the colonoscopy volume manageable, at least, uh, hopefully it might be able to be in improved, increased uh, the age and and the sensitivity, but that's how we need to start Uh, and it will be a successful program. This will pick up about 60 to 70% of cancers, uh, but there will be cancers that are missed uh, and uh, they will present later with symptoms and so need to be on the lookout for that. Uh, Patients with negative tests will need to be evaluated on their merits and uh, referred uh, if there are any concerns. It's interesting that uh, countries that have had screening uh, have been able to reduce the incidence of colorectal cancer. That's not just finding early cancer, that means that you can prevent cancer by finding polyps and removing them. Uh, If you think about the States, and and, uh, often rather critical of their health system, but there, over 70% of the population have a colonoscopy when they're 50 and when they're 60. Uh, And despite the fact that they have having a problem with with obesity, as we have, and that might be a factor that increases colorectal cancer, they've been actually being able to reduce their incidence of colorectal cancer by 3% a year over the last 10 years, whereas uh, we've still got an increasing incidence. So I think screening works. Uh, There's a resource that's required, uh, but it's the only way we're going to make a difference to uh, our statistics, which aren't uh, very good at the moment.
0: And to conclude, Alan, your take home message from this podcast.
1: Well, bowel cancer has a good prognosis if diagnosed early. It is one of the cancers where we really can make a difference. Uh, We've got the tools to do it, Uh, colonoscopy and removing polyps and finding cancers early really does work. Uh, It's just a matter of targeting our colonoscopy to the right patients. If we just simply uh, doubled our colonoscopy volumes in New Zealand to put it up to something similar to Australia, we would make a difference. Uh, We would improve survival with colorectal cancer and gradually reduce the incidence of colorectal cancer. Uh, Whether we're going to do that and whether we have the resource to that is is another matter. I think the future though is better selection and uh, talked about the faecal occult blood test and, and its limitations, but some sort of faecal DNA test that would detect adenomas as well as early cancer with a high degree of accuracy will enables, enable us to target uh, our colonoscopy to make the biggest difference to uh, improving survival of bowel cancer in New Zealand.
0: Thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand primary care practitioner and would like to claim CME points for listening to this interview, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.